Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Good morning. We're reading from Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 to 22. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, your God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing of milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch up my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Morning, everybody. Happy summer to you. A lot of you are sleeping in and coming to the second service. I like it. It's great. It was pretty sparse here this morning in the first. It's nice to see you. If there was one thing you could change about yourself, what would it be? Some of you know right away because you've thought about this, but for some of us, give it some thought. What would be that one thing you would change about yourself if you could? Maybe it's, you know something about your appearance that's always bothered you, or something about your voice, or maybe it's a caricature, character trait that, that's always bothered you or has been um, so painful or hard to rid yourself of, or a personality trait, something you do at parties that you wish you didn't. I don't know. Like, what's the thing that you… Uh, that's, that came off kind of like a weird thing. Uh, um, like, what's that thing that you would change about yourself? I, I know what the one was for me when I was a kid. It was that my ears would go red whenever I was tired. Some of you kids in the room can relate to this, right? And I, I just, I, 
despised it because my mom would look over at me and see my red ears and say, Matt, you're tired. Go to bed. I'd be like, ah, because all I wanted to do was stay up late. That was my objective. But my ears would turn red when I was tired. And she'd just look over. You're tired. Off you go, son. Ah, come on, right? It was the worst. So that was the thing I would have wanted to change the most when I was a kid. Now, I mean, I don't know where to start. It's, I, <laughs> I'm a work in progress. But um, I think we all have these things that, that we recognize in ourselves that are traits that we wish we didn't have. Um, picking up where we left off last week, this text reminds us that God can use weak, imperfect vessels to do great things for God's glory through the strength and presence that He provides. We left things off last week here in verse 10 of Exodus chapter 3, where God says that He knows, hears, sees, and will respond to the cries of affliction of His people. And then He says in verse 10, Come, Moses, I will send you. And so we pick it up now where Moses is struck with this reality that, oh, you, you want to send me? And so what we're going to see in this text is two excuses that he makes in the latter part of Exodus chapter 3. Next week, you'll see three more excuses he makes in Exodus chapter 4. So in all, Moses is about to make five excuses, give five reasons for not obeying God's mission to free God's people from slavery in Egypt. The two in Exodus 3 that we'll look at this morning is the first question he asks, this excuse he makes to say, who am I? Who am I that I should do this? Why me? Why me? Who am I? The second question he'll ask is, who are you? What should I tell them your name is? In other words, who are you? Describe yourself to me. Give me your name. What am I to say? Who am I and who are you? He'll come up with three more that he'll say, and you'll see them next week in Exodus 4. They won't listen to me or believe me, he'll say. Moses will also say, I'm not a good communicator. I'm not eloquent. And finally, it's as if he wants to throw in the towel. He'll, he just says, send someone else. These are his five excuses. Kids, we got some kids in the room this morning. It's a family service. You ever make excuses? All right. There is one young child that will admit it. It's awesome. I'm glad. I was, I was picking the staff's brain about this. I was trying to collect some excuses they've heard, and I asked Pastor Chris, what are some excuses your kids make? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I've got to think about that. And then this morning he said, you know what? They just really don't make excuses. And I said, you are a typical children's pastor. Just you nail it at work and you nail it at home, don't you, buddy? <laughs> you're, just, you're just that great, aren't you? I was like, well, because I wrote down like nine from my kids, so... No, uh, and we actually did a little hashtag thing. It's very Tonight Show of us. We did a hashtag, Kids Excuses, and we asked you, let us know. And it sounds like, it seems like about three of you know how that works. On uh, <laughs> social media, we got a few responses of hashtag Kid Excuses on Facebook and Twitter, which we'll share with you. Through some other streams, uh, I, I was able to hear back some more of your uh, excuses. In other words, I'm about to list a number of kids' excuses from this very room. Are you ready? They're going to come up on the screen. Here's the first kid excuse we received. We ask parents to send in their best, worst, funniest, most outlandish ones. Here's one. I'm having a nightmare. The only problem is they were just sent to bed and clearly have not been asleep yet. But the excuse is, I'm having a nightmare. Therefore, I need cuddles. I probably need to get up, have more. To, anyway, on and on it goes. 
Another kid excuse. The daughter declares, I'm stuffed and won't finish her dinner, but suddenly is hungry again when the dessert comes out because, quote unquote, I have a dessert tummy. (laughs) This is an age old, thousands of years, right? It's always been. Here's another one. The son got in trouble and after his dad's rant responds, and besides, that's the point. Just this really kind of ironic agreeing with dad. It really shut, the dad was saying that it really shut down the conversation because what do you say after that? He's like agreeing with everything I just said. Another kid excuse, I can't eat my lunch. Why? It's girl cheese. I want boy cheese. That's good. That is a kid excuse right there. That is great. On not getting better grades at school, one child said, I knew when I had good enough grades to graduate. So that was, that was all I needed, right? I, just, I, did, I didn't do better because I already knew I had what I needed to graduate. Another, another kid excuse, son woke up in the night crying with a bleeding nose. This is gold. My finger thought my nose was a birdhouse. That is... You, you put that child in, like, art school. Like, whatever the, whatever the, like, you know, the theater music school, you know, the creatives go to, that's a creative child. That is an amazing excuse. Here's some classics. I'm too tired for walking. It's very, it's very cute when they're two. It's not so cute when they're, like, nine. Um, another kid excuse, you're closer. Oh. And if we're honest, this is a spouse excuse as well. You're closer. Can you grab that? We just use that one. Um, Another kid excuse. I'm too tired to go to church today. And the parent responded, when we were kids, there was nothing else to do but go to church. And the child responded, we're way busier with stuff now. And I would agree, kids, you are very busy with stuff now, but I'm going to break it to you. None of it's important, but you're just super, super busy with stuff. That's the way it is. Here's one more. Kid excuses. It's from like an infant, but uh, the dad submitted it anyways. He, he heard the excuse in it and the biting sarcasm. So there are a number of real kid excuses. I have a question for the rest of you, though. I, don't, I should do a list of the parents' excuses, adult excuses. But here, have you ever made excuses to God, your heavenly father? Ever made excuses like that? We could list them, right? We could go for a while. Ever excused yourself from obeying his will or following his leading? Got some pretty creative excuses for those things, don't we? I mean, this text reveals something really critical for us, the people full of excuses and reasons not to listen to God. One of the reasons why this text is so helpful to us is that we can relate to Moses, right? Oh, look, at he lists five excuses for why he didn't want to do it, didn't want to go, it didn't want to be the guy, right? But it doesn't stop there with us just relating to Moses. Oh, look, he's like us. Look at us. Oh, humans, hey, we've all got excuses. Let's, there's a guy in the Bible who has excuses too. Ah, it excuses us. No, it doesn't stop there. The story doesn't stop there. This text reveals God. This text reveals behind every excuse of ours is a God who answer, whose answers are enough. A God who says, sure, you've got your excuses, but I'm going to keep coming back with truths, with realities about who I am that's going to make all the difference. So let's look at the excuses we make and then the promise God 
makes. For he declares a beautiful promise in this text. The excuses we make, here's the first. Who am I? Who am I, God? Moses' first excuse, doubt, question, whatever you'd like to call it, is who am I? Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He's a prince turned shepherd. That's who Moses is. Told to go tell the most powerful person in the world to let his own slaves go free. That's what he's supposed to do. He's being told to go back to Egypt, the very place he ran from after the murder he committed was found out about. So Moses' impression is, you've got the wrong guy. Who am I? Why me? We all do this, right? God calls us to, 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 to be his church, to be his followers, to be his disciples. It's even, he even says things like, take up your cross and follow me. And we look around and go, there's, there's got to be someone better than, than me to go do that. But look at God's response to Moses. Moses says, who am I? God's response is, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God is saying, I will be with you. So go, because you're going to come to this very place we're talking right now, this burning bush scenario. You're going to come back here with all the people freed and worship me here. Recognize that I am the God who frees. I am the God who saves. I am the God who redeems. You will be here, but with a crowd, with slaves who have been made free. I will be with you. What's so incredible about this is God's method isn't to find the most skilled who can accomplish great things on their own. God doesn't go around looking for the all-stars over and over again in the scriptures and go, that guy's really great. I think he could do it himself. I choose him. No, God's method is to accomplish great things through the strength that he supplies. And the weaker the vessel, the more broken the vessel, the more glory to God. Why? Well, that guy sure couldn't do it on his own. Like We all know him. We all know Moses or Mo. We all know Mo. There's no way he could do that. What's going on here? Well, it's God intervening, God working in and through him, God going with him. That's what God does. In other words, who am I is irrelevant. It's who God is and the promise he makes that's important. So look, this is the first of five excuses that Moses makes. It should have been his last. It should have been his last because God responded to him after his very first excuse, I will be with you, and that is enough. It doesn't matter how great you are. If God says, I will be with you, which he does, you have all that you need. You need nothing more. But Moses then turns his question from who am I to who are you? Who are you? In verse 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? This excuse that Moses makes is this. If the people of Israel ask who sent me, what name should I tell them? In other words, who are you? It, it, it appears to me like this question is poorly disguised as a question on Israel's behalf when he'll, really he wanted to know. He wanted to re- get more from God. He wanted to know for himself more. It's kind of like, 
Sometimes, you know, I'll be with my family somewhere and I'm ready to leave. I'm ready to go. But I don't want to say, you know what, I'm ready to leave because that sometimes comes off as rude. So I'll say, you know what, my kids go to bed early. We should probably go, need to get those kids home, get them bathed. It's a whole routine. Gets me out of there. It appears like I'm just being a good dad, but really it's an awesome excuse. It's time to leave. It's time to go. In a way, Moses is disguising this question on behalf of the people. What if they ask a certain question about who you are? What should I tell them so that they know they're prepared? He's really saying, who are you exactly? Tell me more about you because you're asking me to go to Egypt. I just need to know more. And at first glance, this seems like an odd question, but it's really not. See, the context around Moses in Egypt where he was and where he's going and in Canaan where he is now and where he will come back to was polytheistic, meaning it had belief in and worship of more than one god. It had worship of the gods. We've seen this in history and we see this today. And so A.W. Tozer, a great 20th century theologian, said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is an important statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Not just that we think about God abstractly sometimes or that we think about Him occasionally is what's important, but what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us because there's a particular concept we have of this God. And whatever that concept is, is either true or it is false. It is either belief in the one true God or it is misbelief. It is, it is wrong belief. What we believe. Most of the world have a concept of God. Right? It's really only atheists in the, in the West, in, in, on the planet, <laughs> that really are, don't have some concept of God. But globally speaking, most of the world have a concept of who God is and it affects the way they live. So whatever that concept is, what you think about God, when you think of God, is the most important thing about you because it affects your belief system and it, it affects how you live, how you respond, what you do. Most of the world have a concept of who God is and it affects the way they live. If your concept of God is Allah, seen through the Quran, you're, you're going to have a particular belief about God and it's going to lead to particular ways of living. If you are a Hindu, you will believe in many gods. It's a very polytheistic religion, right? There's Krishna and Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, Shiva, the destroyer. You can look at ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Zeus was the weather god. Aphrodite was the god of love. Venus was the Roman equivalent. Artemis was the fertility goddess. Diana was the Roman equivalent. And so in ancient times, people would worship multiple gods. This, this actually infested many times in the Old Testament. You can see it, the people of Israel. So they were meant to follow Yahweh, God alone, but then they really wanted their harvest to come. And they saw that their neighbors were worshiping a God of the harvest. So they brought that into the sort of polytheistic view. Oh, we need that. Hey, we're not having a child. We need fertility. Let's worship this God over here. And this was the common practice of the day. It's common in many parts of the world today. So what's important here is this question of who are you, God, is which God are you exactly? Like God said, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's declaring himself to be this covenant-making God who's revealed himself to this people in the past, and he's revealing himself again. And yet, Abraham, Moses, give me, give me some more because I need to understand this rightly. And it's an important 
question. See, our concepts of God are so diverse and contradictory today, and so different. And, and so, so when we talk to someone about God, we need to define who we're talking about. So often today, we talk to people about God, and they go, oh yeah, God, great, I believe in God. And, oh, that's awesome, we both believe in God. All right, we're done here. This is great. But, but, but really, when someone tells you that they don't believe in God, or even if they do believe in God, but say they, they don't believe in God, a good question to ask is, what is this God that you don't believe in like? Because what often happens is they begin to describe the God that they believe exists in the world. And they'll describe him as vindictive, right? Getting vengeance, angry, right? All, and, and start to describe this God and start to describe all these attributes about God. It's a good question to ask. What is this God that you don't believe in like? Because I probably don't believe in a God like that either. See, so much of what missions and evangelism is, is painting a biblical picture of who God is. Who does the, what does the Bible reveal about the character and nature and attributes of God, of God's Son, Jesus? of the Trinity. What, what, is, what is it? Because, because people have their concepts of God, but what's most important about us is what comes into our minds when we think about God. The most important thing in our dialogue with people who sure maybe believe in God or don't believe in God is, who is this God you don't believe in? Or what is the God like that you do believe in? Because I want to tell you about the God who exists and reveals himself in Scripture. This is the way the Apostle Paul approached his missionary voyages. He shows up uh, at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 with all these Greek philosophers. And he, he says, I, I, I noticed a, 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 an inscription on a, on a sculpture to an unknown God of yours. I know that God. That God has a name. And he goes on to describe him to them. And it says that eventually some believe. He eventually shared the gospel with them, pointing back to the fact that that name is Jesus. And this God who's unnamed to you has a name, who's unknown to you can be known. Um, just earlier this week, one of our pastors was talking to a gentleman in our community, uh, part of the First Nations community, and they had a really great conversation and talked about uh, the Creator. And this Creator who they revere, and this man revered as the Creator of all things, but he dare not call him God. It may, may be disrespectful. But, but had an interesting dialogue about, yes, there is this creator, and he's over all things, and we're to tend to this, take care of the earth, and all of these things. Is, uh, there's a lot of commonality there, and the opportunity, like Acts chapter 17, arises again to understand that culture, to have that commonality, and then to say, this creator God has a name, and to get there and to describe the God of the Bible, and his name is Jesus. See, Moses was told to go persuade the Israelites that God had called him to lead them to the promised land and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And Moses is a lot like us. He had his doubts. He had his fears. We all have our doubts. We all have our fears. We doubt God and we doubt ourselves. And God in his grace takes the question Moses asks about himself and answers him. But I love how he answers him. Because Moses' first question is, who am I? And God doesn't come along and say, Moses, you are the best. Moses, don't be hard on yourself. Who are you? You are great. 
you are the, the greatest guy, your personality is super awesome. Moses, just feel better about yourself. Don't ask who you are, you're special. But God doesn't do that. God loves Moses. God's pursued Moses. God has a plan that involves Moses. But when Moses says, who am I? God just says, I'll be with you. In other words, doesn't really matter who you are. I'll be with you. And I'm God. He says, what should I say? And God says, I am. Moses has doubts and fears, and he's looking inward. He's looking at himself. What should I say? Who am I? What should I do? I'm not good enough. And every time God just says, I'm this, I'm this, this is more about me. This is more about me. God, in his grace, reveals himself. And this is part of the promise that God makes. Verse 13, at the end of it, let's look at the promise God makes. Moses concludes his question, what is his name, and what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generation. See, when God revealed his name here, he revealed much about his nature, character, and attributes. He, he's done that, and yet at the same time, theologians have spent 3,000 years trying to understand this name that God gives of himself here. It's actually quite confusing in some ways. I am who I am kind of raises more questions than it gives answers. I am who I am. Oh, okay. That's that's, so, that's somewhat helpful, but it is helpful, but, but there is some mystery to the name, and I think God intends that. I can't just simply give you a name. It answers all your questions. You can put me in a box. Here's my name. It's Dave, right? Like, it's just like it's too simple and straightforward. I am who I am. Huh? Wow. Okay. I am. It's, it's, it's mysterious and hard to comprehend, and that's part of the point. But I am is this statement that is a verb that means to be. And it's very infrequently used. It's I am, that verb, appears very rarely as the name for God. It's mysterious and it's hard to comprehend. And, and, and yet he also follows it up with the Lord. Um, he calls himself the Lord. And so Yahweh, or the Lord, appears almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament. There were no vowels in um, ancient Hebrew, um, just consonants. And so it's a little bit tricky. So kind of English translation, Y-H-W-H. And so there's even a little bit of mystery. And how do we, how do we say, quite say that? Because we have to kind of guess at the vowels and, and what it is. But the, but, um, but the way that this gets translated in your Bible is Lord in all small caps. Um, Lord is, is this common use of Yahweh um, repeated over seven, nearly 7,000 times in the Old Testament. And there's a long history of translating the divine name that will probably put the adults to sleep, definitely the kids. So let me just summarize this as briefly as I can. There, there's so much here. There's this long history of translating the divine name Yahweh as Lord that goes back to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Bible the early church would have had. They translated Yahweh as 
well, Kyrios, but we translate that Lord. They translated Kyrios, which means Lord, and it helps us see the connection in the New Testament as well because Jesus is identified as Kyrios and called Lord. Centuries later, some of the Jews, centuries after Moses here, the Jews stopped saying the divine name, maybe out of superstition or reverence. So when they came to the name in their scriptures, they would, they would say Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. And so the tradition is, and you'll see it in most English translations, that in small caps, that word Lord is Yahweh, and it is this name for God. But this more rarely used name is I Am. And this verb tells us a lot, these two um, uses of his name that he uses here tell us a lot. Tell them, I am who I am has sent you. I am eternal, right? He's just saying, I am. He's eternal. I've always been. I always will be. I am present, but I always have been. I am present. I am self-existent, independent of everything. I am self-sufficient. I'm in need of nothing. I'm never thirsty. I'm never tired. I never need somebody to help me out. I am self-sufficient. I am immutable. I'm unchanging. I'm the same God who made a covenant with Abraham that said, I will make you a people. I will make you a nation and I will bless you to be a blessing. I'm unchanging. And so that stands. I am sovereign. I'm powerful over all things. And I am your God. I have been your God. And Moses, I will be your God. And the God of my people, This is the God we're talking about, the eternal, transcendent, all-powerful God. This is who we worship. This is who we proclaim. God over all things. So this polytheism that's going on, I'm going to worship this God for this, this God for this, this God for this. Over all things exists the God who is, I am, to be. Who not only is, but let's move to this last point, who also is with his people. There's a book I've been reading for this series that's called The God Who Makes Himself Known, The Missionary Heart of the Book of Exodus. I struggle to just to to grasp the depths of that. That that transcendent, all-powerful, all-sufficient, almighty, all-sovereign God who exists over all things isn't deistic didn't just create and then step away and let things happen. He's the God who makes himself known to you and to me, to Moses. He's not only the God who is and is all those great glorious things. He's the God who's with his people, the God who makes himself known. We discovered this last week that God knows, sees, and hears and will act in response to the cries of affliction of his people. God does not send Moses to Pharaoh alone. He says, I will be with you. I will be with you. That is the great promise of God. The remainder of, of, Genesis, of Exodus chapter 3 reveals that God has already sovereignly worked out every detail. He says how it's going to shake down. The Israelites will follow you. Pharaoh won't want to let them go, but eventually he will. There's going to be some opposition, but it's going to get to the point where you are going to be able to leave Egypt and be freed. And in fact, they're even going to self-plunder themselves on the way out and say, hey, take our stuff while you're at it. All of that's going to happen. And then all of it did. Why? Because God had sovereignly orchestrated all of it to be so. He will bring his people out of bondage and slavery to an even evil taskmaster to a new land 
where they are free to be a people who worship the one true, gracious, and loving God. We talked about this a few weeks ago because we were in John chapter 8 for our series in the Gospel of John, and there are some people that are quite skeptical about Jesus, and that's putting it lightly. And they do not like what Jesus is saying. And Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced at my day. He saw it and was glad. And they said, what? Abraham was like 2,000 years ago. You're not even fit. What are you saying? And then Jesus declared, before Abraham was, I am. That rarely used verb where God's self-description appears, and Jesus is declaring, I'm that God in control of all things who made a covenant with Abraham in the first place, who met Moses in a bush in the first place. I am. And they knew exactly what he meant because they picked up stones to kill him. Jesus was identifying himself as the God of Abraham and Moses, the great I am, the eternal, self-existent, all-powerful God, and yet God with his people. For there he was in the flesh with his people like never before, See, like, for, like Moses and the Israelites, outside of Jesus, we're all subject to bondage. Ours isn't bondage to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh and his taskmasters. It's to sin and death and that evil taskmaster, Satan. So Jesus became God with his people in a much deeper way. He bore our sin on the cross and died the death that we deserve. In his death, he paid the penalty for our sins. In his resurrection, he rose victorious over death. God's declaration, I will be with you, culminates in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He paid our debt, makes himself known, and his everlasting presence will be with us wherever we go. That is the great promise. As Moses was being commissioned by God, he declared, I will be with you, Moses. And as Jesus commissioned his disciple, that's every follower of Jesus, he declared, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you. I am the God who is and the God who makes himself known, who is with his people. This works itself out, like I said, in these two amazing ways, this God with us. It means that he's with us in our burdens, in our guilt, in our sin, in our shame. Where we have issues, when I ask that question, what would you change about yourself? Where you have these plaguing things about you that are not good enough, are not right. You just so desperately want, in your weakness, Jesus comes and bears the load. But not only that, the God who is becomes present with us and his glory, his righteousness his grace is given to us. I'll be with you always to the end of the age. I am with you. I am with you. He pursues you. He loves you. And he is with his people. I encourage you this morning. Turn to Jesus, the God who is, who is over all, and the God who makes himself known to his people. I encourage you also to respond to this Jesus this morning. When he calls you, when he presses you, 
when he tries to push you out the door in your faith, know that he says, I am with you, and that is simply enough. We're going to pray in a minute. We're also going to sing. We're going to take communion as well. So I'll invite our communion servers to come on forward to these tables. There's a couple up in the balcony for you at the ends and a few down below. I'm going to invite our worship band to come up. They're going to lead us in some songs. We have a prayer team as well that love to make themselves available for prayer. Just say it. You're going to be up anyways. Why don't you slip to a different place in the room and receive prayer? We love to pray with each other. The point of being the body of Christ together is that this isn't a solo faith. This isn't a me and Jesus thing. We gather on Sundays once a week to lift high the name of Jesus together. We carry that banner together. So let's minister to one another. Let's raise our voices in praise. As we do that, we edify one another with our singing of truths. Let's come and receive communion. Let's pray for one another. We have the kids in the room, so I just want you to know just what communion's all about yet again. We take this bread as a symbol of God's, of, of, of God's Son, Jesus, His body broken on the cross for those very things we were talking about so our debt could be paid, our sins could be washed away. His body was broken and His blood was shed so that we could have eternal life. If you believe that, if you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, this is for you to receive with your children, where they're particularly young, this is a really neat opportunity for them to observe mom, dad, right, older siblings partaking in something that they believe. And if, if your children believe, understand the gospel, are preparing for baptism, right, that's, their faith is their own, invite them to participate. If they're, it's also just amazing for them to observe. So it's not snack time in any way. That piece of bread even though it's gluten-free and doesn't taste great, would be a nice little help. But no, it's communion. It's revering the Lord's Supper. Just bring your children, let them be a part of it, but just they're welcome to just observe if they're particularly young. And then let's just pray together and we'll respond in all of those ways. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. Thank you for making yourself known to us. Lord, as I ponder my sin, as I ponder the wretched man that I am and the need of saving that I have, it is a wonder, a mystery, a grace that you condescended from the heights of heaven to earth showed us how to live, died in our place, rose again so we could have life. And you declare from that point on, believe in me and I will be with you in all things. So Lord, would you receive the worship that we bring for all that you've done for us? And then as we go from here, Lord, would you go with us? For there is no one too weak for you to do mighty things through. You love to do it. The only thing necessary is that you are with us. So we ask that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.